1 Samuel 17, verse 26. The second sentence, the Bible records David as speaking. A question. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 3,000 years ago in the Valley of Elah, a massive man named Goliath of Gath stepped out of the Philistine ranks to defy and taunt the army of Israel and its God. For 40 days, terror tactics, he harangued the Israelite warriors, heaping shame on them. Since none dared to accept his fight to the death, winner takes all one-on-one challenge. Every morning and evening, he stepped forward and the men of God shrank back. And then a Hebrew shepherd, a teenager, who we know from last week, chapter 16, 12, and 13, had been discreetly anointed the one, God's chosen king, and filled with God's Holy Spirit, showed up in the camp, not as a soldier, but as a son sent by a worried dad on, of all things, a sandwich run. Bread and cheese, verses 17 and 18, for his soldier, big brothers, and their unit commander. And he heard this giant pour out his scorn on the apparently impotent host of the Lord. And David was indignant, outraged. And he took his shepherd's sling and he gathered a few stones and he split Goliath's head open, verse 49, and then chopped off his head with the big man's own sword. Quite a story. A big valley provides a big setting for a big story about a big man. And we have one of the most famous stories of all time. And I fear one of the most misunderstood stories in the Bible. Children love it. And theologians argue about it. And even in these relatively biblically illiterate times, there aren't many who don't at once get the names. David and Goliath. From famous cranes in Belfast to a 2013 bestseller by by Malcolm Gladwell entitled David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Where David... The most famous underdog in history reminds us, Gladwell explains, that we underestimate at our peril the power wielded by the weak and marginalized. And, you know, a host of lessons have been drawn from this great story. Leadership, management, personal development, spiritual success. Most of them, I'm afraid, with very little to do with the text. Deal with the giants in your life. Understand your armor, the five stones of David. Resist the bullies. Well, now, there probably are useful talks in all of those, but they're not the thrust of the chapter. We love underdog stories, don't we? Lech Valenza in Poland, that solitary Chinese figure in front of the tanks in Tiananmen Square in 1989, President Zelensky in Ukraine at the moment, Why does God put these stories in the Bible with all this sort of gritty detail? The sandwich run, the family tensions, and you just feel that, don't you? Verse 29, now what have I done, says David to his brother 
in that exchange. The detail about Goliath, how tall he was, how much his armor weighed, the thickness of his spear shaft. What is God trying to communicate to us with all this detail? And somebody here this morning says, with justification, what has any of this got to do with me today? Well, I think it is that God wants us to know that his work, his covenant, his plan, that all these things are real. It's for a real world. And you get sort of real world details. It's for real people. And as you read this chapter, these people should be familiar because they're like us. We know about family squabbles. We know what fear is. We understand danger. We know how sometimes we wonder at what our reward will be. All these details are there in the passage. God wants us to know that his truth and the hope of his truth are rooted in his activity. This is not just a God who speaks. This is a God who acts. And so the detail is retained for us. We trust a God who understands what we face and whose truth speaks into the harsh realities of life in a fallen world, whose love, grace, and power meet us exactly where we are. Romans 15.4 is a useful reminder. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Well, you know the story well. No spoiler alerts here. The Philistines were the old enemies. They were a marauding pirate nation, a perennial problem for Israel. And they had now encroached, verse 1, to Socho in Judah. We're not meant to miss that. It's too close to home. It's 13 or 14 miles from Bethlehem. And it is undoing some of the conquest of the land under Joshua. Things are not going well. And the sad summary of Saul's reign, which we get at the end of chapter 14, said it all. All the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. Should have been a simple thing for Israel in many ways. Because God had said, I will deliver these nations into your hands. I am the Lord. But it wasn't. It wasn't working out. And for 40 days, verse 16... Israel would assemble for battle, and each day out would come this great warrior, almost ten feet tall. And he would taunt the Israelites bitterly. And they would go back to their tents and commiserate. What are we going to do? And this wasn't the first time that they had faced giants, but it wasn't going well, because this man looked simply unbeatable. Massively protected and massively armed. Verses 4 to 7. His shield the size of a bedroom door. His name, Goliath, spoke menace. His size, his armor, his weapons made him look an impregnable fighting machine. I still remember the poster from the wall of my 1950s Northern Ireland Sunday School with his ugly mug up there. 
And if what was seen was bad, what was heard was worse, verses 8 to 10. And that theme of taunting, mocking, defiance weaves its way through the whole chapter. Six times we're told Goliath defies or disgraces Israel. And he shouts there in verse 8, choose a man and let him come down to me. It left, verse 12, Saul and Israel impressed and depressed, dismayed and terrified. Here was an uncompromising enemy. To scorn God's people, who are the apple of his eye, is to scorn God himself, and that never ends well. Is there any champion? Is there any go-between who could step up and stop all this? Enter verse 12, an unimpressive hero. The son from Bethlehem. Sent on an errand by his father, Jesse, who was anxious about his boys serving at the front. Yes, there's military skirmishing and posturing across the valley from the edges of the battlefield, verse 20. There's plenty of shouting of war cries, but not much action. And into this, verse 23, the loudmouth Goliath is, as usual, at it with his defiant mockery. But this time there's a difference, end of verse 23. David heard it. And we're not meant, I think, to miss the whole contrast in reactions which follows. Verse 24, the Israelites from Saul down see Goliath and flee from him in paralyzed fear and dismay. But David reacts differently. It's as if he sees things that they don't. To him, the scene looks dramatically different. Remember Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles uh, 20.12. Lord, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Well, in Israel's case, in the Valley of Elah, it seems to be a case of, Lord, we do not know what to do, and our eyes are not on you. We're not even thinking about you. The army and even Saul seem somehow to have become theological amnesiacs, functioning atheists. And look, it it can happen to any of us. We forget who we are in the Lord. We stop believing our beliefs. And they'd stop looking at circumstances the way that God looked at circumstances. And they'd become pessimistic and defeated. And they concluded of Goliath, he's so big, he'll kill anyone who goes there. David's conclusion was a bit different. David's thinking is, he's so big, I can't miss him. (laughs) It's all about perspective, identity, who we are, who God is. When we lose sight of God as he's made himself known in the Bible, we will inevitably lose faith and heart for the battle. Well, yeah, we may still be shouting about lots of things, verse 20, but inwardly we're cowering, verse 24. We start acting poorly because we're thinking wrongly. Who does this loudmouth Goliath think he is? 
The people saw him as unbeatable. David saw him as uncircumcised. Verse 26b. Do you see the difference in perspective? It's not about how well the army is doing or how good a leader Saul is or how effective the military strategy is. No, it's not about these things. It's about God and his glory. And everything that God is doing, everything is about getting glory to his name. You know, we never look at our world or our lives or our situations neutrally. Our worldview, who we are, what we believe, is what shapes how we function in life day by day. And this chapter, I think, is really about worldview. It's about strength in weakness stuff. Now, it ought to hurt us as It did David when he sees the name of God dishonored or sin prospering. And that's because our identity, our meaning, our purpose, our inner sense of well-being are all attached to this God who is being defamed. And David's faith-filled theological perspective allows him here a different vantage point. On the grave situation, and it is grave, in the valley of Elah, he gets it. He gets it. He's a child of the Most High. He understands God keeps his covenant promises. He understands that the land he's standing in belongs to him because the Lord has claimed it from him. He understands what God has promised, and he asks the right questions. And the questions are not, what does this mean to me? What does this mean to my family? What does this mean to my nation? What does this mean to God? His name and his glory. It's the last one that is the question. And David sees what's going on as wrong. It's an outrage to God's honor. Who stands around for 40 days letting this great hunk of a man defame the name of God? David sees here what others missed. Yahweh's reputation is at stake. And that's worth risking life itself for. That's the driving concern of the chapter. The important thing is not that the armies of Israel would be well regarded but that God's name would no longer be dragged in the dust in the valley of Elah. Well, to underline all this, the text brings us a series of brief dialogues with key players, and the first dialogue is with the army, 25 to 27. It's all very human, isn't it? There'll be lavish rewards for whoever steps up and they get to discussing that. The army's problem is that they had ceased to believe their beliefs. They believed Yahweh was the living God, and yet they acted as if he was dead. They believed that he was the Lord Almighty, and yet were acting as if he was powerless. They believed he was the faithful covenant-keeping God, and yet they were acting as if he was indifferent to their plight. They believed he was their deliverer, but were acting in a way to suggest that they did not expect him to be able to deliver the goods. Goliath, at that point, looked bigger than God. 
It's absurd, isn't it? They suspected God had stopped listening and caring and acting. Know the feeling? Their concern was now safety and survival. A bit like some of us in the church in the West. But David's overwhelming passion is for God's honor. Look, I know we all want to be David in this story. (laughs) That, That goes with the territory. But a lot of the time, let's not kid ourselves. We're right up there with the soldiers. Paralyzed often by identity amnesia. Second little dialogues with his brother, 28 and 29. It's not nice feeling rebuked by your kid brother. And I wonder if Eliab's still stinging from being passed over in the events of chapter 16. It's not nice having your flat-footed inactivity questioned. Eliab, verse 28, burned with anger. He's fed up with his brother. And you can hear the contempt in his voice, can't you? Why have you come down? And that patronizing tone about leaving those few sheep. Eliab stands here as another representative of those who are acting poorly because they're thinking wrongly. Even some of your own family may at times have you down as a bit of an irritating fanatic. Ask Jesus, he knew all about that. The third little dialogue is with Saul, verses 32 to 39. David is summoned. Saul overhears some of this. David is brought into his presence. The future king meets the failed king. Now, we don't know if this is the first time they've met. It may be. Chronology isn't always easy in 1 Samuel. As in a film, there are sort of flashbacks and anticipation. But you you can almost hear the incredulity of verse 33. Dear boy, I don't think you're quite what we need. And Saul here is the voice of apparent human reason. He's sensible, reasoned, pragmatic, and wrong. Somewhere along the line, he stopped listening to his master's voice. The spirit has left him. Somewhere along the line, he has stopped singing the songs that marked his confident trust in the early days of his kingship. Now it's practical atheism with him too. Solutions, he says, probably lie in armor and weapons, playing Goliath at his own game. And like Saul, I mean, again, we see ourselves here, don't we? Like Saul, we too sometimes get tempted to fight the world with the world's weapons. But David not only asked the right questions, he made the right choice. Verse 32, he said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul is not sent for David because he suddenly gets it and has finally rediscovered his identity. No, Saul is desperate and he'll try anything. That's the atmosphere here. And if you hadn't read the conclusion about David, you might think, is this young man arrogant? Is he delusional? 
Has he any idea what he's facing? And Saul seems perfectly sensible when he says, you can't go. You're too young. Goliath is too old a war horse. And then later in 38 and 39, we have all that tragicomic experiment with Saul's armor. You know, let's match Goliath's kit with my kit, which of course hopelessly swamps David and it's cast aside. That's the world's way of fighting. The weapons we fight with, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.4, are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. This is only going to work, not because David is somehow the right stuff, but because he trusts in the right God. He's not self-confident, he's God-confident. And courage, friends, is always a derivative virtue. We see that in verse 37. Do you realize that in this long reading, verse 37 is the first time anyone has even mentioned Yahweh's name? The Lord who, as it says, is in the rescue business. It's his speciality. And if God had helped David rescue a lamb, maybe he could help him rescue a nation. If he delivered him from a bear and a lion, might he not do it again with this Goliath character? And when later David started writing the poetry we call the Psalms, he could say in Psalm 124, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive when their anger flared against us. What he's testifying to here is not his ability, but the Lord's enabling. There's a fundamental logic to faith here. We know who we're dealing with. And the fourth dialogue, of course, is with Goliath himself, verses 41 to 47. Verse 42 says it all. You just get the atmosphere. He looked David over. You can just feel the supercilious arrogance, can't you? The dismissive contempt of verse, uh, v- verses 42 to 44. Am I a dog? that you come at me with sticks, verse 43. David asked the right questions. He made the right choice. And now finally we see he did the right thing. We've seen the uncompromising enemy, the unimpressive hero, and now here at the end is the unlikely victory. Verse 45. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Suddenly the confrontation's put in its proper context. Where does David's confidence lie? Not in his strategy, not in his weaponry, but in his experience of the living God. He's clear about who's doing what. Verse 46, this day, the Lord, 
will deliver you into my hands. And Hannah's prayer back in chapter 2 verse 10 had said, those who oppose the Lord will be broken. Well, in fact, it looked as if the reverse was happening. It was the soldiers and Saul himself who looked like the broken ones at this point. This is all about who God is. And that's the issue today, isn't it? Behind so many of the cultural battles we face as the church. It's all about God and his glory. The focus here is not on David's bravery, but on God's adequacy in David's weakness. He trusts in the Lord because the Lord is supremely trustworthy. And I think that's the principle of the whole story. No one is an underdog when God is on their side. And that's, isn't it, why in the Christian life we endure any hardship. It's the only antidote ultimately to despair. It's all about God. And may he forgive us for every time we start to think it's actually all about us. We need to be people of good memory and sound thinking. That's David's approach here. Why are you doing all this, we ask David? Well, the answer is there in verse 46. The whole world will know there is a God in Israel. It's there in verse 47. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Reputation as a God mocker may be one thing. A person may, like Goliath, feel proud and invincible, self-satisfied and secure, but reality may be very different. Who can defy God? The answer is ultimately no one. A time comes when all the boasting and the big shotism and the bragging and everything else is over. I think here Goliath is a sort of representative of all those anti-God forces we face, those voices saying arrogantly, we've got this covered, everything's under control, the God-mockers and the God-defamers. And when God judges finally, they will, end of verse 49, fall face down on the ground. It's never good to mock the living God. It always ends badly. Back in chapter 5, verse 3, you may remember, the so-called Philistine god Dagon fell on his face in front of the captured ark of the Lord. The symbolism is profound. People will bow to the living God one way or another, either in salvation or judgment, but bow we will. Well, time is almost gone. The question we're I think supposed to ask is not principally, where am I in this story? Though, of course, that's what we like to do. We want to be David. Don't we want to be David? But a lot of the time, we're not, to be honest. We're more elder brother. 
whinging on the sidelines. We're failed king with the sort of human solutions which are completely wrong. We're soldiers discouraged on the hillside. Lots of noise, but not a lot of delivery. No, the bigger question is, where is Jesus in all this? Here's an event which was an extraordinary biblical victory. Israel's future depended on it. The army didn't fight. You know what they did? The army just watched. They watched as their future hung on the shoulders of David, a man anointed, appointed, a servant, chosen by God to be a champion, a man in between. A prototype, if you like, of Jesus himself. And as David stood between the armies of Israel and their defeat, so Jesus stands between us and our defeat. And where is our ultimate defeat? It's in death and judgment. You know, you run your whole life, and at the end it comes to a crashing halt. That's why death can be so frightening and unsettling. Who is there to stand between us and that eventuality? Need someone to step forward as our champion and savior to defeat our ultimate enemy. And the answer is that Jesus has done so. And his victory is the greatest news the world has ever known. That's why the message, message of this chapter is not that we're called to be like David. No, the wonderful news is that in Jesus we have a David who has won it all for us and who has already triumphed in the valley of battle on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that just as the army of Israel had reason to say, we are thankful that David stepped forward as our champion. So as we look at the cross of Christ and the triumph of his resurrection, coming to him in humble trust, we too are able to say, thank you for the wonder of your victory and your grace. Lord, as we go into next week, fill us with a deep sense of our true identity and worth in you. Help us to believe our beliefs that we are children of God and live to the praise of your glory. Amen.